Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Jessica Lilly. In today's show, as part of our Folkways project, we meet 19-year-old Trevor Hammonds. Whenever I picked up the banjo, I was just, it's like I flew away with it. It came so natural to me. I don't like to say, but I didn't have to try to play it. Trevor plays music that's been passed down in his family for hundreds of years, music that connects back to before the Civil War, to when the Hammonds family lived in the British Isles. Trevor learned their style of music from recordings that were made before he was born. Lee had a really light touch, and when I'm playing his tunes, I like to use a really light touch to make sure that it's exactly the same. I try to get it you know, to my ear how it would sound exactly like he would. In today's episode, how families shape us and how people are finding new ways to connect with loved ones, even those we've never met. That's up in the next hour of Inside Appalachia. Welcome Inside Appalachia. I'm Jessica Lilly. The coronavirus epidemic has changed so much of our lives. If it's taught me anything, it's to value the time we get to spend together. I think back to a visit I had a few years ago. My aunt and my cousin drove over from Kentucky, and together we hiked along the land that our ancestors once settled along the Bluestone River. And even though nobody's lived there in 70 years, a park ranger told us that he does see daffodils growing there in the middle of the forest. That kind of touches my heart, just knowing that some lady had planned them, wanting her, her house to be pretty, you know, and her mark's still here. That, that's awesome. We were standing on a stretch of land that used to be called the Village of Lily. Our ancestors were forced to leave in the 1940s when the Army Corps of Engineers built the Bluestone Dam. Standing there with my Aunt Kay and my cousin Angela, I felt connected to those people, even though I've never met them. I haven't seen my Aunt Kay in more than five months, but social media helps to stay connected. It's even the way we plan our annual family pack reunion— That was my dad's mom's last name. There were a lot of packs in the Village of Lily, too. Today's show is about family, the family we remain connected to even when apart, and how the pandemic has helped some of us reconnect with their family near and far. We'll also hear some advice if you're considering opening your home to a new animal addition to your family and learn why there are pros and cons to adopting a pet during the pandemic. We start with the story about the struggle to belong and connect even when you're around family. Producer Trey Kay makes his home in New York now, but he often travels to West Virginia for work. He also grew up here and still remains close to his family in Charleston, West Virginia. Well, as it happens, Trey was visiting just as the statewide lockdown went into effect. He's remained living here throughout the past few months. Trey's the host of a podcast called Us and Them, and in a recent episode, he talks about why the pandemic made him feel almost like an outsider in his own hometown. Let's listen. So I heard from my sister yesterday. She sent me a text and said, uh, I better be careful about driving. And I was like, well, what what, what are you telling me? And, And I called her back and she told me in the governor's address that he basically was very concerned about people crossing the borders into the state of West Virginia and that... In particular, uh, people who came from places like New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Louisiana, and I think he even said China and Italy, that if they were coming into the state, that he was directing the state police to pull them over and ask them questions.
Now, we in West Virginia want to embrace all and have people come from all walks of life when this is over. But right now, we don't want you to come, and we want you to hear us. We don't want you to come across our borders. If you're coming primarily from New York, New Jersey, or Connecticut, and you're coming across our state lines, you have to be quarantined for 14 days. And absolutely, I expect our state police, and I'm direct, directing them, that if there are folks that have come across state lines and they are not quarantined and everything, that some way, somehow, we've got to be able to get word to them that that's exactly what they've got to do. I mean, on one hand, I'm not worried about that because I've been here in West Virginia for, you know, long past the quarantine time. And, and quite frankly, I've spent most of that time down here in my mom's basement. But there are things that I need to do out in the community. And I've got a New York license plate. And I've already seen some messages on Facebook from just regular rank and file West Virginians who've actually addressed me saying, hey, we don't want you here coming to our state. <sighs> This really feels kind of funny from a guy who has a show called Us and Them. I feel to my brethren, West Virginians, a little bit like a them. You know, as I'm driving my car with its uh, New York plates, I'm, well, I'm, if I get pulled over by the state troopers, I've, I've actually talked to, you know, my organization, West Virginia Public Broadcasting, and they provided me with a letter that I can show to the, the state trooper. We are absolutely doing it, doing it in a good way today. But this monster can turn on us and turn on us in a bad way. And the reason this monster can turn and turn bad is just as simple as this. We're an old, old state. And by old, I mean we're an elderly state, the most vulnerable of all. In addition to that, we've got a lot of people with chronic illnesses. This thing can get ugly and get ugly really fast. We're on top of it right now. We're trending the right way. Please stay the course. Please just stay the course. We're going to get through this. Sobering words from a governor when so much has changed, including how our Us and Them team works, even the topics we're covering. For a few days in early March, I did some in-person interviews. We were separated by a long boom pole that held a microphone. Now, I do video chat interviews. The coronavirus defines things. Hello. Is, is, hi, can you hear me? I can hear you. I can't see you, though. Oh, well, let, me, let me fix that. Sure. I, at least I think I can. Wait, oh, I see. i got to tilt my... Hi, how you do? Hi. With the world getting smaller every day, I wanted to know more about why a pandemic brings out fear and prejudice in some and the need to reach out and help from others. I found someone to help me sort through all of this. My name is Damir Huremovic. I'm the director of psychiatry at North Shore University Hospital in Manhasset in Long Island, New York. Dr. Huremovic is originally from Bosnia. He's studied and written about pandemics. And last year, he published a book called Psychiatry of Pandemics, A Mental Health Response to Infection Outbreak. In the book, Dr. Hurumovich talks about pandemics throughout history. 
Some of the names were new to me, for instance, the Athenian Plague in 430 BC, but others are more familiar, the Black Death, the Spanish Flu of 1918, and also HIV, SARS, Ebola, and Zika. Dr. Hurumovich says pandemics have shaped our societies and cultures in significant ways. Our civilization is kind of wrought with these pandemics. There was a whole procession of them. They came at regular intervals. And as soon as we were able to record history, we were basically recording these outbreaks and these pandemics. As a matter of fact, I would dare to say that the infectious outbreaks or pandemics are kind of bookends of human civilization because all the major religious books talk about pandemics and outbreaks very early in the nascent stages of human societies, and they all have this eschatological point of view where the end of days and the end of the world will also be accompanied by these outbreaks. So they play a very crucial role in our history. What are we seeing about this virus outbreak that shows you how people react to panic? We are seeing, I think, uh, what we used to see in the past, but at a much more accelerated, um, in a much more augmented way. So now you have, first of all, modern ways of travel, which means that, you know, if it's uh, in China today, it's going to be in Italy tomorrow, just like it happened. Mm -hmm. And also you have this pervasive uh, presence of social media, which means that anyone can sound off on what is going on, and that also serves to kind of amplify certain points of view, certain, you know, certain emotions that resonate with people. So in terms of apprehension or fear or optimism or courage or despondence, all of that is going to be a display through this plethora of social media that we have available right now. So in this book that you have written, is there some kind of general pattern that psychologists or social scientists have observed regarding people's personal or collective responses to pandemics? I think there is something that we have identified, but that there is this what we can call emotional epidemiology aspect, which kind of mirrors the onset of and the spread of the pandemic itself. People start, first of all, it's not on their radar. Then it's on their radar, but it's somewhere far away. Then they start thinking about it. Then they become preoccupied. Then it kind of hits home. And they, even if they have not experienced it firsthand, they are seeing the lockdowns, fewer people in the streets. There is this run on the stores. So they start being very anxious and almost terrified. And then as the pandemic or an outbreak subsides, they also tend to banish the thought of what was so anxiety-provoking and almost existentially threatening into the kind of netherworld of their memories. And most people basically tend to forget very, very quickly. I'm wondering, how do you see people's loyalties? Do you feel like they shift when they're tested during a time like this? They can, but most likely they kind of just become more convinced and hold on to their beliefs. So if we're kind of in that us and them posture, 
maybe even more of an us versus them posture. What does that do to our sense of social consciousness and shared responsibility that we all need to have? It's a big test. And that is what I see as a major challenge for us going forward through the next couple of months. It's not really the disease itself. It's a very tricky disease because its epidemiological features are kind of just enough to pass it as a serious outbreak and, and a pandemic and so on and so forth. But in terms of mortality and everything else, it's nothing like the pandemics of the past. Yet, we are now imposing all these measures that may be drastic and in some aspects draconian that are going to have severe impact on our economy and our social fabric. And so that is where the challenge lies going ahead. It's how we are going to negotiate those threats to our social norms, social mores, certain level of civility. As I said, it's, it's gonna be very interesting going forward. do we know about the role hope plays in how people handle fear and anxiety? Hope plays tremendous role. You always have to kind of navigate between being realistic with the facts, being careful and cautious, and then being kind of an optimist about how this is going to play out. Even during the Black Death and during the Spanish flu pandemic, vast majority of population survives. It's not like we're all going to get it and we're all going to die. A, we are not all going to get it, and vast majority of those who get it are not going to die. So there is absolutely reason for us to be and remain hopeful that this is kind of a blip on the radar that we will be able to successfully negotiate and then learn from it so that we can be ready for the next, the big one, because this one really shouldn't be the big one. This is really kind of a warning shot for us to get a better understanding. I very much enjoyed this conversation, and I just am really grateful that you've taken your time to speak with me and kind of give us some insight as to what it is that we're going through. Listen, it's been my pleasure. It boosts my self of social uh, benefit, serving a socially useful role. And as I said, it's absolutely crucial for us to remain hopeful because this is not half as bad as your worst fear may make it look or sound. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Every day, the news from New York is grim. For weeks, New York City has been the nation's hotspot for COVID-19 cases. For many, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has emerged as a voice of reason and of hope despite difficult circumstances. This is disorienting, it's frightening, it's disturbing. Your whole life is turned upside down overnight. To the best you can, you find a way to create some joy. You try to find a silver lining in all of this. How do you break up the monotony? What do you do? How do you bring a smile to people's face? Cuomo's coronavirus briefings offer a daily body count. 
with pleas for help from the federal government, requests for respirators and masks and healthcare workers. There are also very human moments, folksy advice and tales of big Sunday dinners he remembers with his family growing up. My extended family is pretty big. My sister Stacy organized a virtual campfire on a Zoom chat. Hello. Oh. Hi, Dan. Hi. How's everybody? Hey, hey Marion. Hey, Stacy. How you doing? Good to see you all. It was chaotic with about 50 family members talking at the same time. It didn't go perfectly, but gathering around a fire is a family tradition for us. So why stop now? All right, sweetie, you haven't left the house in quite a while, right? Yeah. We went for a walk earlier today in town, so. It's nice that we can uh, all be together like this, which is certainly not something that they could do during the Spanish flu. So at least we have that. There's so many cases in Athens right now. Yeah. Just like people coming back from spring break and stuff like that. I, I know five of my guy friends went to Miami and all of them came back and tested positive. So they had been on quarantine until like yesterday. Last week they were like, we're testing someone in the office. We think they might have it. Luckily the person tested negative. But Matt, who fled here, who's staying, staying at my house. We are still out. forced apart. But maybe we can bridge this divide. Maybe we're all evolving towards something better. Civilization couldn't have survived this long without taking a hit. Hey, Stacy. Right? Could could you have could could we just get everybody to give a roll call? Can we just hear where who who all's here and stuff like that? Just so we can hear that. Yeah. Yeah, look at Ben. At some point during this chaotic yet wonderful virtual campfire, all those squares on my computer screen showed me how our Appalachian family sprawls across the world. We're all over America. We even had cousins phone in from Europe just before their bedtime. It got me to thinking about how I felt on 9-11. In the hours after the World Trade Center attack, I was in my Brooklyn apartment. We stayed inside to keep from breathing all of the debris that was in the air. The phone rang constantly with family and friends checking in on me. They wanted to connect with someone at the epicenter of the chaos to see if I was okay. Looking at the Zoom squares of my family connecting from all over the world, I realized this time we're all in this together. It's happening to the young people who've had their school year interrupted. It's happening to my aging relatives who are befuddled by the technology that lets them see their loved ones but doesn't allow for the hug we would all rather have. This experience teaches me that now we are all us. In some ways, we could drop the ampersand and the them from the title this time because it's us who will find our way through this. And it's us who will hopefully learn some valuable lessons from this experience. We're testing someone in the office. I did a print screen. So. Hey, hey, guys. You know. Maybe you should just call on everyone, Stacey, so we know when to talk. 
Okay, that's a good idea, Kev. Let's go around and say... You can hear the full episode of Us and Them on our website, as well as all of the podcasts from West Virginia Public Broadcasting, including Mountain Stage and Inside Appalachia. It's at wvpublic.org. Like Trey's family, many of us have been spending a lot more time in online conversations with our friends and loved ones during the pandemic. Man, I wish I'd thought to record Granny and Papa when they shared their stories. I'd ask so many questions. Have you ever thought about recording your relative stories? Perhaps even with the technology and our new adopted ways of meeting? Well, in the second half of our show, we'll learn some tips on how to record oral histories through programs like Zoom or Skype. Also, if spending extra time at home has you thinking, maybe this is a good time for a new pet, we'll share advice to help you weigh the realities of adopting a pet during the pandemic. Stick around for the rest of this week's journey Inside Appalachia, I'm Jessica Lilly. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. During the pandemic, most of us have been spending more time at home. For many of us, it's allowed more time for bonding and perhaps reconnecting with their families. And for those of us with pets, that includes our furry friends. I know my children and I have enjoyed giving our 10-year-old Beagle Georgia some extra attention these past months. She frequently pulls up her bed beside me wherever I've set up my laptop that day. And my son has even learned how to put food and water in her bowls. Maybe you've been spending more time at home and wondering... Is this a good time to adopt a new pet? Well, it may actually be difficult to adopt at the moment. That's because during the pandemic, some shelters have closed their doors and stopped in-person adoptions. Though many are offering virtual interviews for people wanting to adopt, adoptions across the country have actually decreased, according to PetPoint, an online resource for animal shelters. Though when we called animal shelters here in West Virginia, those that remain open, say they've seen an increase in adoptions, and more people are stepping up to foster animals here and across the nation. The future for many animal rescue charities and nonprofits is more unstable. They face funding shortages due to the economic slowdown of the COVID-19 pandemic. And some are worried there will be an increase in people abandoning their pets after they go back to work. So what will happen to the rescue organizations and all these animals as states and economies begin to open up? Reporter Kyle Vass has the story. At the Cabell Wayne Animal Shelter, you can just walk right up and see what dogs they have for adoption. During the day, 10 to 15 dogs are placed in these outdoor kennels. They're these gated-off spaces with concrete floors. They're about 25 feet wide and 10 feet deep. Each kennel has a dog house, a water bowl and even a ceiling fan. Today, the dogs are on high alert. They see me, 
a stranger with a fuzzy-looking microphone, and they start doing what dogs do best. Leading this dog chorus is Bellamy. He's a two-year-old brindle mix, and right now, he's on top of his doghouse letting everyone know he sees me. At the far end of this row of kennels, there's Briar, a beautiful gray pit bull. She cannot be bothered to bark along with the others, and instead she just paws at the gate, begging to be loved. According to the director, these 10 pups make up half the population of dogs currently staying at this shelter. We're holding pretty steady around 20 dogs. And that's down considerably from before the pandemic? Oh, Lord, yes. We always had it somewhere between like 85 and 100, somewhere in that range. That's animal shelter director Courtney Cross. She says getting the number of animals that are sheltered down is important for two reasons. One, she wants to keep the number of volunteers and staff who have to come to work down. And secondly, shelters like hers rely on animal rescue organizations. These are third-party nonprofits that take animals from shelters and put them into homes. If these rescue organizations are unable to secure funding due to the recent economic downturn, her shelter will be overrun with animals. We send a lot of our animals to rescue organizations. As states shut down, if the rescues were not able to do adoption events, then what would happen? One of these animal rescue organizations is in Ona, West Virginia. Little Victories sits on 115 acres of beautiful farmland with a winding creek running through it. The director, Stephanie Howell, meets me on an overcast day to show me around. Right now what you're looking at, these are what we call our cottages, and they look like little houses. I mean, they've got doors and windows, and they have little doggy doors on them. Um, The porches are set, and so when it's raining, they can sit outside and be under shelter, which is nice. As we head up the road, she points out a building on the right. Then this is the cat sanctuary, which is a double-wide trailer, and literally the cats just roam free in there. Um, Typically, when we're full, we have 35 cats, and what you saw out there is um, in the sanctuary, there's 22 dogs. Typically, in a given day, we could have anywhere from 7 to 15 requests. Um, Some days we get 25 if we've got two litters of kittens or, you know, something like that. But there's always a wait list here. Um, the people that. on that wait list are hoping to surrender their pets to Howell. Despite the fact that her organization is usually full, Howell doesn't reject people. If she can't accept their pets right away, she puts them on a wait list, but she also offers advice on how to deal with common pet problems, like how to potty train a puppy. Her organization has even helped out with vet bills from time to time. It costs a lot of money to run these kind of facilities. I don't think people typically realize how much it costs. It costs us, like I told you before, $1,100 a day. I'm responsible for raising um, about $400,000 a year. And we, don't, we do not get any city, national, state-level uh, funding. So it's all through uh, grants that we can apply for, donations, fundraising events, and things like that. She says her organizations made it through the first quarter of the year. But the economic downturn does have her worried about future funding. Come on. Come here. Amanda Kinder and her family decided to adopt Lucy three weeks ago 
She's a Pyrenees mix. We're not sure um, what the mix is, but we do know she's Pyrenees. She is tiny and kind of white and cream colored, and she's got white on her little socks and on her face. They actually call the coloring on her face badger. It looks kind of similar to a um, raccoon mask. Amanda says her kids have been begging for a dog for years. And I figured right now with everybody being at home, this would be a great time for everybody to be able to actually um, learn to take care of her and her schedule and get her used to our schedule without people, you know, being gone for long periods of time. Even with four people in the house, Amanda says taking care of an 11-week-old puppy isn't all cuddles and playtime. Definitely her getting up in the middle of the night. So kind of like a toddler, they do not sleep entirely through the night yet. So we're working on that. She recommends anyone adopting a puppy first make a list of all the things they need. It's just like when you're pregnant and you have a baby and you buy all of the things and you go through the great big list of all the things you need. We kind of did the same. We're like, okay, she needs a crate and she needs a puppy bed and she needs a collar and she needs a harness and she needs a leash. She needs toys and she needs food. She needs chewy treats. So. (laughs) In addition to needing lots of stuff, pets also need a lot of time. And although most families are staying at home right now, this won't last forever. Do you think that it'll be harder when everybody ends up having to go back to work or when people aren't at home as often? Oh, I'm sure. Absolutely. Because right now she's got unending amounts of attention and people are playing with her. And if she barks, somebody in the house will definitely come to her and see what she needs or play with her or take her outside. So I think when all of this does go kind of back to normal, I'm sure it'll be an adjustment for her just like everybody else. When the stay-at-home order is finally lifted and people go back to school and work, what sort of effect will this have on these newly adopted pets? The American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals issued a statement on this. They said that pet owners should start slowly acclimating animals to being left alone so that they aren't caught off guard when we do go back to work. They say these new pets, quote, may be left confused and potentially lonely when family members start spending less time at home. For a lot of us right now, pets have entered our confused and potentially lonely lives. Whatever it looks like when humans do go back out into the world, our pets will have to adapt. And in some ways, so will we. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Kyle Vass in Cabell County. This new reality that's causing many of us to spend more time at home also means more time with our pets. This means more time going on walks, training, and learning each other's habits and personalities. And like we just heard, this is not the ideal time to adopt if you can't take care of it long term. But those ready to commit, well, maybe all that extra time at home can help you begin bonding with a new furry addition to your family. Student producer at West Virginia University, Maxwell Shavers, has this story about what the pandemic has meant for some people wanting to adopt a new dog. Well, we had been looking for a shelter dog for a while, and we I had been emailing back and forth with the shelter, watching the, watching the animals that they had. One morning, the, the director sent me a picture of, of that puppy and asked if we wanted to come see it, and I said we'd be there in five minutes. Derek Lambert is a coordinator at the Department of Education in Charleston, West Virginia. A couple weeks ago, he and his partner adopted a black lab mix from the Canal Charleston Humane Association. They named him Orion. 
we went and we weren't able to go inside. So we actually stood out in the rain and met him for the first time at the shelter. That's because due to the pandemic, the shelter has had to make some changes, including following social distancing guidelines. And I mean, as soon as we held him, we're like, yeah, we're taking him home. Holly Goheen is the director of development at the KCHA. She said since the pandemic started, the number of people adopting and fostering has increased. During one uh, couple day event, we actually placed uh, about 167 uh, animals into foster homes. Those uh, foster homes have become foster failure homes. So those fosters have become adopters, which is fantastic news. Goheen says there were 371 animals adopted in March and April this year an increase of nearly 50 adoptions when compared to the same time last year. This increase surprised Goheen, who thought the state's stay-at-home order would come with a decline in adoptions. But social distancing guidelines have resulted in some challenges for the shelter. One change that we have made during the pandemic is we've been doing um, adoptions by appointment, so and a lot of adoptions over the phone. Puppies are particularly in demand. My dog was 14 years old when he had to be put down in November. My family and I mourned the loss for months. But during the state stay-at-home order, we too thought it would be nice to have a puppy along for the ride. And now, we have Jet, a black lab terrier mix whom we adopted from the shelter five weeks ago. We've been spending lots of time together since then. I'm just concerned that, like, once everything gets back to normal, he's going to have separation issues or something. Well, that means you need another pet. You need another puppy. <laughs> My mom is just already talking about She could be right. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Maxwell Shavers in Charleston, West Virginia. We have one more story about an animal finding his forever home. It's the story Inside Appalachia producer Roxy Todd originally reported last year about a dog who became famous for being, well, impossible to catch. His name is Miller. I'll let Roxy take it from here. Okay, like many stray dogs, there are mysteries with Miller's story. Here's what we know. Miller's a small black and brown dog. He looks like he has a little chihuahua in him. He was found roaming free in Charleston, then brought into the local animal shelter. Eventually, a family adopted him. But soon afterwards, he escaped. Miller the dog is a a scrappy, independent dog that was loose for a couple of weeks. But nobody could ever get close to him, and he was always just like a bullet. He was always in full speed, like he had somewhere to go. From what I could tell, he was just a small dog, but he had these long legs. um, And any pictures that were posted of him, you could kind of see his small body, but his legs were blurry, um, just because he was always on the run. These are some of my neighbors, Megan Smith, Candy Henderson, and Emmett Pepper. We live in the east end of Charleston, where Miller was on the run for almost a month in the coldest part of winter. One thing nobody really knows is how he got here. The family who initially adopted him live almost six miles away. Miller became a celebrity of sorts on the the local neighborhood conversation boards because people were really worried about his safety and uh, concerned that he wasn't going to be anywhere warm overnight, especially in, uh, when it was in the single digits. There was a post saying, let's get this dog before, you know, the cold hits. Um, it's not safe, obviously, for him to be out. We saw Miller uh, over by the Capitol. So 
we went to try to get Miller, chased him around for about 45 minutes. He just kept going. He he would stop for a while and look at us, let us catch up, and then just keep running. <laughs> it became clear that this was no ordinary dog. I once stopped for Miller, offered him half my cookie. He bolted with this smug look on his face. We all wanted to be the one to catch him. On social media, his status blew up. Memes were made about him. Someone made him a Facebook profile. Brandy O'Dell, another neighbor, was organizing the search. She had her phone number on posters all over the neighborhood, and she was getting lots of Miller sightings. And so I got calls daily, and they were sightings, but Miller was so fast there was no way that I could respond to each of those calls because he would just simply be gone by the time I got there. But then, on Valentine's Day, a hound dog named Charlie was out walking with his owner. Miller went over to Charlie to play. Here's Sean Dunlap, Charlie's owner. My dog basically is the one that helped catch him. He was the one that kept him there most of the whole time. So, Do you feel like he's the hero of the story? Well, sort of, I guess, because everybody had been trying to catch him for so long, could never get him. Sean reached out and grabbed Miller, who wasn't happy about being caught. He looked like he was, uh, I don't know, a captured fugitive or something. Sean called the number from all the posters about Miller. Again, here's Brandy. And so I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you telling me that you have apprehended this dog? And uh, they said yes. And so I said, oh my gosh, I'm on my way. So I ran out of here and and went to get him. And of course, Miller was terrified, naturally, uh, to be expected. Um, And when I held him, he had little tears running out of his eyes. And he was just so scared. And and I was just like, oh, little baby, it's going to be okay. And, And he kissed my nose. And so I knew then that, you know... It was going to be okay. He was going to be fine. Oh, yeah? Yeah? So what is Miller's future? That's the question we've all been asking. The family who originally adopted him from the shelter decided they weren't the best fit. Miller is just too fast and needs a special owner who can train him. Otherwise, he'll probably just run away again. Several different people in the neighborhood have been fostering him, getting him to his vet appointments, and house training him. Brandy and some of the other volunteer rescuers are hoping they'll find an owner for Miller who can keep up with his speed and appreciate his wild ways. I think that Miller would make an awesome agility dog. He is fast, fast, fast. It became a joke in in the Facebook world that he was the fastest dog alive. For now, Miller is resting up and enjoying the comfort of having a warm bed. He likes to sleep in and doesn't always like to get up in the mornings to go for a walk, especially when it's cold. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Roxy Todd in Charleston. That story originally aired in 2019. We checked back in with Miller's foster mom, Crystal York. She has since adopted him, and he's doing great. She says he enjoys outrunning all the dogs at the dog park. We have photos and video of Miller on our website at wvpublic.org. We started our show with a story about a family who gathers around their screens to talk through Zoom. A new form of gathering around the fire to talk, as Trey K. put it. These modern ways of staying in touch with each other aren't new, of course, but suddenly we're using them so often and in ways that would have seemed unfathomable just a few months ago. 
There are now online fitness classes, Zoom mommy and me groups, virtual happy hours, and more doctors offering appointments through telehealth meetings using screens. With just a click of a button, you can record them and capture your own family's oral histories. Before he joined the Inside Appalachia team, associate producer Eric Dugg, though so many of us are apart, there is one benefit to using technology. So, though so many of us are apart, there is one benefit to using technology for so many of our conversations with family. With just a click of a button, you can record them and capture your own family's oral histories. Before he joined the Inside Appalachia team, associate producer Eric Douglas recorded more than 150 oral histories. So how do you ask the right questions? Here's Eric to help get you started. We left off. You were living in Davis Creek, and you were probably about middle or junior high. We were about nine or ten when I moved over there. Okay. What do you remember about that that period? Like I say, I thought we were, I made a note, we thought we were in the country. We thought we were out in the middle of nowhere. That's actually my mom, Lois Douglas. I recorded that in person. She's been staying with me since the pandemic took off. To pass the time, I've been having her recount some of her earlier memories. By then, I had I had been working at a Purity Baking Company. You know, they baked the bread there, they made the cakes there, and everything else. It came down the conveyor line. The breads were hot, and you had to get a flat box and put a loaf of bread in it and carry it that way. If you tried to carry it in your hand, it smushed down to nothing. Mom was talking about her first job after high school graduation, but this got me thinking that a lot of people could be doing the same thing remotely. At its simplest, an oral history is a recording of memories. Stan Bumgardner is the editor of Golden Seal Magazine. He says oral histories have a way of capturing people's emotions that are attached to a memory. If it was an important event in your life, you certainly remember how it made you feel. You remember how it affected the people around you, and that's from you know, good to awful to funny to tragic. If you are using software like Zoom or FaceTime to keep in touch with family, there's no reason you can't record the conversation. As long as everyone agrees, of course. In fact, a lot of video and audio chat options allow you to record directly through the program. Just try asking a few simple, open-ended questions, says Francine Kirk. She's the interim director at the Frank and Jane Gabor West Virginia Folklife Center in Fairmont. She says if you want to know more or need clarification on what they're telling you, try repeating the last couple words. So when my grandmother said, I sat there in all those wet underwear, I, I said, wet, wet underwear? And you just make it sound like a question. And then she launched on what she wore to school. But aside from having those memories and voices recorded, Kirk thinks there's another benefit. Well, I think it's about figuring out who you are and why you are who you are. For Bumgardner, oral histories are great at capturing sensory experiences. People can remember their grandmother baking an apple pie and they don't have the recipe for it. And they have no clue how to make it themselves, but they know exactly 50 years later what it smelled like when it was baking and how it tasted and how it made them feel when they ate it. When recording an oral history, the best thing you can do as a listener is to be quiet, Bumgardner says. And especially with elderly people, sometimes they'll, they'll kind of, you know, they'll have to fumble around for a memory for a few minutes and you just want to jump in and help them. And all you're doing is kind of shutting them up. Once you record those family stories, you'll have them forever. The sound of your loved one's voice is just a click away. 
For Inside Appalachia, I'm Eric Douglas in Charleston. If you record an oral history with your relative, let us know how it goes. And if you and your family are comfortable, you can even send it to us, and we may feature it on an upcoming episode. Oh, and we could use some help with another show we're producing. We'd like to hear your memory of the first time you flew in a plane. Or have you ever had a dream about flying? Tell us about it. We love emails as well as regular old-fashioned letters. Our email address is InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org, and our Inside Appalachia mailing address is 600 Capitol Street, Charleston, West Virginia, 25301. We're going to close out our show with the latest story from our Folkways Project. In the 1800s, subsistence farmers, the Hammonds family, migrated from Kentucky to what would become Pocahontas and Randolph counties in West Virginia. Several members of the family became well-known for their unique songs and storytelling and will be inducted into the West Virginia Music Hall of Fame class of 2020. Trevor Hammonds is the great-grandson of one of the inductees, Lee Hammonds. Trevor never met his great-grandfather or any of the other inductees. But their old-time music and love of the mountains lives on in his determination to carry their legacy forward. Folkways reporter Heather Nyday has more. This is Abe's Retreat. I learned this counter from Dwight Diller. This is Trevor Hammonds playing at a local radio station in Pocahontas County, West Virginia, two years ago, a few days before his 18th birthday. Trevor is a quiet young man who doesn't go out of his way to draw attention to himself. That is, until he picks up the banjo. At festivals and competitions, his style of banjo picking draws crowds and wins awards. The Vandalia Gathering is an annual festival held in Charleston, West Virginia, devoted to old-time and bluegrass music. At the Vandalia Gathering the past few years, he's been one of the top five musicians in the old-time banjo category, an honor usually awarded to older musicians. Trevor says he tries to preserve his family's style of music by using the same old-time Appalachian style of finger-picking on the banjo that was used by his great-grandfather Lee Hammonds and by Sherman Hammonds. It's a style of finger-picking similar to claw hammer that uses the thumb and tips of the fingers to play the strings in a downward motion. In the 1940s, Earl Scruggs introduced his bluegrass style of playing the banjo that uses picks on the thumb, index, and middle fingers that allow the musician to play the notes much faster. Trevor says he uses his family's specific claw hammer technique because he wants to see his family's unique style of music continue to be played and appreciated. He had a really light touch, and when I'm playing his tunes, I like to use a really light touch to make sure that it's exactly the same. I try to get it you know, to my ear how it would sound exactly like he would. Trevor doesn't know how or if Lee was related to Sherman, but he does know they were good friends. He says Sherman had a very different style of playing. Sherman, he used a really, really firm, just 
driving hand. You know, they had the ability to control how it sounded because they understood it, just like I do. He had to figure that stuff out. It's really hard. He first heard Lee playing the banjo when he was seven or eight years old. The music was from a recording done by local musician Dwight Diller and included old-time tunes such as Callaway, Soldier's Joy, and Pretty Polly. Trevor remembers the effect it had on him. When I heard that, it had this haunting sound to it. It sounded really old. It just kind of caught my attention. Trevor was eight years old when he began taking music lessons. At first, he began learning guitar. But after a few months, he wanted more of a challenge. But after you learn the basics on guitar, you're just keeping time, especially with old time, unless you get into flat picking. But then Trevor saw one of his friends playing a banjo at a local jam session in Marlinton. He remembered those old recordings of his great-grandfather and decided he had to learn the banjo. I loved it, the sound of it. I told my mom that next week before my lesson, I told her I was sick because I didn't want to go. I wanted to play the banjo. His teacher, Pam Lund, saw through the ruse and said she would let him try her banjo if he came to the lesson. From the very first note, Trevor said playing the banjo came easily to him. Whenever I picked up the banjo, I was just, it's like I flew away with it. It came so natural to me. I don't like to say it, but I didn't have to try to play it. His music teacher, Pam, didn't want to be interviewed for this story. She prefers to have the spotlight on Trevor, as she does with all her students. But Trevor's musical education would probably not have happened if not for her. When she moved to Pocahontas County in the 1970s, Pam learned the songs of the Hammonds family from other musicians who'd played with Lee and Sherman. She, in turn, taught the music to her young students, including Trevor. Pam... If it wasn't for her, you know, I don't think I appreciate anybody more in this world than her because I wouldn't have anything if it wasn't for her. Through Trevor, Pam has ensured that the legacy of the Hammonds' music will continue within the Hammonds' family. To lose that connection would be a big loss, says Carl Fleischhauer, a folklorist retired from the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. He says the Hammonds had unique talents. They excelled at their musical craft. It's not exactly that they were different and what they knew was different from other people. It was that, in a sense, it was more distilled and brought to a a finer polish. Why is Rembrandt a better painter than the other painters who were active in Holland at that time? And the answer is, well, he's not different. He was just better than they were. Fleischhauer and fellow folklorist Alan Jabour made numerous visits in the early 70s to Pocahontas County. They came to watch the Hammonds family play music. They asked for their permission to record them so they could preserve their songs. In 1973, they compiled these recordings into a double album recording for the Library of Congress. Today, it's considered the comprehensive album of the family's musical legacy. Fleischhauer says there was so much more to the Hammonds than just their music. Almost every family member had a rich sense of place and past and a wonderful skill at storytelling. That's why he also recorded interviews with the Hammonds of their stories and riddles and tall tales. 
Here's a clip of Maggie Hammonds saying a riddle for a common summertime plant. Well, it's white as snow and snow it ain't, and it's green as grass and grass it ain't, and it's red as blood and blood it ain't, and it's black as ink and ink it Did you figure it out? She's talking about the blackberry bush. When it blooms, it has a white flower. Then when the berries form, they're green at first, then they turn red, and finally black when they're ripe. It really was a kind of immersion experience to visit those family members. Trevor grew up listening to stories about how they lived from his dad and from uncles, aunts, and cousins. Some of the Hammonds, like Sherman and Maggie, stayed close to home and lived off the land, while others, like Lee, had to leave home to find work to support a growing family. He didn't play music for over 50 years. He left and went to work. He worked so many different places, logging, a duck farm, just anything he could to help his family. He left, and he came back. He picked the banjo up, and he could still play it. I mean, he quit playing music for so long, but it was for a good reason. And you know, the other ones, you know, they were like hunter-gatherers, I like to call them. Lived off the land. It's totally different. Trevor says he sees a lot of his great-grandfather's story in his own experience. He, too, is finding a way to continue his music while making a living through labor-intensive work. After Trevor graduated from high school, he attended college but quit when his mother became ill. It would be almost impossible to support himself and help his mother if he only taught and performed music and stayed in Pocahontas County. So instead, he's chosen to work at a lumber mill so he can stay close to his home place. Eventually, he's hoping to take a course in commercial truck driving and to find work that will allow him to stay close to home. In 2019, Trevor taught a week-long course in banjo at the annual Allegheny Echoes Music Workshop Series in Marlinton. Last year was my first year teaching Allegheny Echoes. If there's younger kids in there, an enjoyment I have just watching, you know, especially if they're interested, you know, they really want to actually learn, it's, it's even more special watching them take it in. Trevor is hoping to teach again this year. The camp, originally scheduled for late June, has been postponed until later in the year. In the meantime, Trevor says he hopes to be able to teach banjo to students over the Internet to continue to pass on his musical knowledge to more people. He's also excited about playing his family's music at the West Virginia Music Hall of Fame induction ceremony in Charleston. That event, which had been scheduled for April, has now been rescheduled for November 14th. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Heather Nyday in Marlinton, West Virginia. So, as you heard, the Hammonds family is pretty legendary in these parts. And to think, some of those traditions and ways of making music just disappeared as they passed away. It's inspiring to hear that Trevor is still able to connect with his ancestors, all thanks to a few recordings. I've always been fascinated by stories from my family. But with most stories, I remember a fraction of the details they shared. I wish I would have written more down or even recorded some of those stories. Sure, it's fun to watch old home videos. Sure, it's fun to watch old home videos during Christmas or Thanksgiving. But most of the time, it's just family looking awkwardly at the camera saying something silly. As we try new ways to connect with family and friends... Maybe these new ways can help us to document them. Maybe it's a good time to record some of these family Zoom sessions. After all, there's something about that moment when someone realizes that they have something special to share. Their story.
whether it be a person I just met or my family. Till next time, thanks for joining me as we journey throughout Appalachia. We had help producing Inside Appalachia this week from Us and Them and the Folkways Reporting Project. Hear this and more stories of Appalachian folk life, arts, and culture by subscribing to the podcast. More at wvpublic.org slash Inside Appalachia. Special thanks to the West Virginia Folklife Program at the West Virginia Humanities Council. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Dinosaur Burps and the Hammonds Family. Roxy Todd is our producer. Eric Douglas is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Glennis Board. Brittany Patterson edited our show this week. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There, you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jessica Lilly. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.